Welcome to the 307th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'll discuss the economic impacts of COVID-19 with economist Micah Pollack. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. We continue to get really great suggestions for guests and topics. Upcoming topics include India and Brazil in the pandemic. Excuse me. Upcoming topics include India and Brazil in the pandemic. Please do feel free to send your ideas and suggestions for those or any other topics relevant to COVID calls. As of today, July 8th, 2021, there are 4,004,006 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, 4,004,006. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, the world's reported COVID death toll passes 4 million. This was written by Daniel E. Slotnick and appeared today in the New York Times, July 8th, 2021. The world's known coronavirus death toll passed 4 million on Thursday, a loss roughly equivalent to the population of Los Angeles. According to the Center for, excuse me, according to the Center for System Science and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University. It took nine months for the virus to claim one million lives, and the pace has quickened since then. The second million were lost in three and a half months, the third in three months, and the fourth in about two and a half months. The number of daily reported deaths has declined recently. Those are officially reported figures, which are widely believed to undercount pandemic-related deaths. Numbers may not tell the complete story, and yet they're still really staggering numbers globally, said Jennifer B. Nutzo, an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins University's Bloomberg School of Public Health. Ms. Nutzo said the number of excess deaths reported around the world suggested that lower-income countries have been much harder hit than their official numbers would suggest. Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, the Director General of the World Health Organization, called 4 million dead a tragic milestone on Wednesday and said the toll was continuing to mount largely because of dangerous versions of the virus and inequities in the distribution of vaccines. Compounded by... Excuse me, let me take that again. 
compounded by fast-moving variants and shocking inequity in vaccination, far too many countries in every region of the world are seeing sharp spikes in cases and hospitalizations, Dr. Tedros said at a news conference. Official death toll numbers tell only part of the horrifying pandemic story. In many places, people have died without family to comfort them because of rules to prevent the spread of the virus, and many countries were completely overrun. The dead overwhelmed cremation grounds in India in May, where at least 400,000 confirmed deaths have been reported and the actual number is likely higher. That was also the case in funeral homes in the United States, which surpassed 600,000 known deaths last month. The virus has hammered Latin America since the start of the pandemic, and some of those nations have been grappling with their deadliest outbreaks to date. As of Tuesday of this week, Seven of the 10 countries with the highest death rates relative to their populations over the past week were in South America, according to data from Johns Hopkins, and the virus has been a destabilizing force in many countries in the region. Government health data in Colombia show that more than 500 people died from the virus each day in June. The country has also gone through weeks of explosive protests over poverty made worse by the pandemic that were sometimes met with a violent police response. A wave of cases in Peru cost many people their livelihoods, and thousands of impoverished people occupied empty stretches of land south of Lima. In Paraguay, which as of Tuesday had the highest number of COVID-19 deaths per capita of any country during the previous week, social networks often resemble obituary pages. Brazil, which recently passed 500,000 official deaths, had the highest number of new cases and deaths of any country in the past week. A recent study found that COVID-19 had led to a significant decrease in life expectancy in Brazil. Several vaccines have proven effective against the coronavirus, including the highly contagious Delta variant, and death rates have dropped sharply in many parts of the world where large numbers of people have been vaccinated, like the United States and much of Europe, but the virus is still running rampant in regions with lower rates of vaccination, like parts of Asia, Africa, and South America. Some places with relatively high vaccination rates, like England, are also seeing spikes in cases, though fewer of those cases have been leading to hospitalizations and deaths. Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, who works on coronavirus response for the World Health Organization, said that there were more than two dozen countries that have epidemic curves that are almost vertical. The virus is showing us right now that it's thriving, she said. Wealthy countries and international organizations have pledged billions of dollars to COVAX, a global vaccine sharing initiative, and nations like the United States have promised to supply hundreds of millions of doses, but those numbers pale in comparison with the 11 billion vaccine doses that experts estimate will be needed to rein in the virus around the world. To date, just under 3.3 billion vaccine doses have been administered worldwide, according to vaccination data from local governments compiled by Our World and Data Project at the University of Oxford. Nearly all have been of vaccines that require more than one dose to be fully effective. Country to country differences in progress are stark, with some already inoculating most of their adult citizens while others have yet to report administering a single dose. The article was the world's reported COVID death toll passes 4 million. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and very happy to bring my guest, Micah Pollock, 
on COVID calls. Let me introduce him. Dr. Micah Pollack is an associate professor of economics and the director of the Center for Economic Education and Research in the School of Business and Economics at Indiana University Northwest in Gary, Indiana. His research interests cover a wide range of topics, including data analytics, applied microeconomics, health economics, especially in the context now of COVID-19, financial economics, regional economics, and more. Dr. Pollock earned his PhD in economics from the University of Illinois in 2011. He teaches graduate and undergraduate courses in the areas of microeconomics, economic history, and other topics. Micah Pollock, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me start the way I usually do, just find out a little bit more about where you're calling from and what the pandemic looks like there today. Sure. I'm calling from Indiana and specifically Northwest Indiana, just outside of Chicago. And here in Indiana, uh, things are mostly going well. We're down to about 240 cases a day in the state, which is like three and a half per um, 100,000 people. Uh, So close to the lowest we've ever had. But I think there's a lot of concern because we're starting to see the declining numbers reverse, uh, most likely due to the Delta variant. And we're starting to see numbers rise, especially in counties that are more rural and have lower vaccination rates. So things are, are, are going well. Um, you know, we're about 40% vaccinated now um, and, and kind of on track to hopefully continue to do well. But there's that concern from the Delta variant. And we're looking at neighboring states like Missouri, um, where you're seeing big spikes as a result of the variant um, with some concern. I'm not sure if you know, but are, are the vaccination rates variable across Indiana? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have um, some counties are as high as 50 to 60 percent vaccinated and others um, down in like I think it was around 25 percent was the lowest I I saw recently. So there's a there's a wide variety and you kind of see cases spreading consistent with that. Yeah. So these state level statistics are just a a, a, they have they're helpful to a point, but then you have to dive even further into the data. Yeah. And, you know, you see cases rising a little bit now statewide, but that's mostly being driven by actually Southwest Indiana, which, you know, I guess geographically is closest to Missouri. Um, and up, up here in Northwest Indiana, cases are actually continuing to drop. So there's a lot of variety within the state itself as well. You know, I've been following what was going on in Southwest Missouri, as everyone has. And it, it strikes me that, I mean, aside from, you know, just the struggle that the healthcare professionals are dealing with there, and of course the community, that from a media perspective, it's playing out almost in reverse of what we've seen. It's it it's reminded me of kind of reporting that I saw last March because because now reporters can actually go there and they're covering in pretty fine grained detail like what the you know the kind of therapeutics that are involved, the teams that are surging in, whereas for so many months it was just everywhere. And now to actually talk about COVID in one specific place, I found that a little jarring almost. Yeah, and we have so much better data reporting now. I mean, you can get case levels at you know the zip code even and you know stuff that we didn't even have, you know, in the middle of the summer last year. So you can definitely get a much more nuanced and kind of fine-grained picture, which sometimes can be more disturbing, like you said. Let me follow up a little bit and ask if you wouldn't mind sharing over these past 18 months, what's the strongest memory of this pandemic for you? Yeah, so I, I was thinking about that. And I, I've been very fortunate that I haven't had anyone close to me lost due to COVID, um, which I know puts me probably in the minority. And so if I had to pick kind of the most, I don't know, um, you know, memorable moment, I think it would probably be back at the beginning 
Um, yeah, I remember in mid-March, kind of early mid-March, uh, we were just wrapping up teaching classes, about to go into our spring break. And I had friends that, you know, were in Italy or traveling to Italy right around the time that you know, everything was, was, was really bad there. And just talking with them and, and kind of following what was going on, at some point I came to the realization that, you know, this is going to hit here and we're not going to be able to stop it. Um, and, and it's going to change our way of life for some time. I don't, at the time, I, don't, I didn't know how long it was going to be, maybe six months, maybe nine months, maybe a year. And, and I remember coming to that realization. And then I remember a conversation I had with a colleague who, you know, was about to go teach their last class before spring break. And I basically said, look, I don't, I don't think we're coming back after spring break to, to our university classes. I think it's going to be shut down and I don't know what's going to happen over the summer. And, and that kind of just struck them with surprise because they had the completely opposite opinion. And then when things played out, I, I really wasn't too surprised. I mean, the lockdowns, things like that just kind of seemed um, consistent with, you know, how severe it was. And I still remember kind of that moment when I, I realized, okay, this is going to be a big deal and, we, and we're going to have to deal with it and it's not going to go away anytime soon. And then if I can, you know, maybe a second moment would be uh, at the end of March this year when I got my first mm -hmm. dose of the vaccine was another uh, you know, very kind of memorable moment. Um, and in between that, I have two little young kids, so it's old and a blur and, and wild and screaming kids and Zoom and everything. So as I'm sure many other people have, well, but those two kind of bookends of, uh, you know, the year really made a big difference. Good on you for pushing through all of that. And I can totally relate to that. And I'm glad everybody in your, in your orbit there has been, has been healthy. And do you mind if I ask where you, in what context you were vaccinated? Was it like, big arena stadium kind of thing or local drugstore? Um, it was actually at our county fairgrounds, one of the vaccination uh, sites. And I, you know, I, I basically went and did kind of wait list the day that I became eligible um, and was lucky enough to get vaccinated. Um, but it was real close to my home. It was one of the kind of temporary ones that they'd set up. So it was, I was a little sad to see them kind of scale it back and close it down. Um, I think it was about a, a couple of weeks or a month ago, simply because there wasn't the demand anymore. Um, so it was, it was very convenient, very easy. Um, yeah, it was a great experience. I hope researchers were able to capture um, the, the I don't even know the, how the word to use, the sort of the anthropology, the culture of those sites, because so many people have described what it was like. Um, I've done a couple of COVID calls about like these sort of sometimes are weird, like speedways, arenas, you know, disused department stores where these vaccinations happened and the kind of instant culture that emerged in line and the high-fiving that was going on or I guess socially distant I'm not quite sure but um, <laughs> that these were unique and special places and of course they were doing life-saving work and then a lot of them have now closed down and gone away. Yeah and I think that it's kind of like getting hyped up for a concert or something right you've spent a year getting excited right. for this vaccine or so and then right. you know the day comes and it's going to be some place like you said that you weren't expecting and it, it, you know in a sense it was almost like uh anticlimactic because it's over so quickly and you move on, right? And then you're just waiting around to make sure you don't have any, you know, side effects and, and then it's over. But, you know, it was just such a such a key moment that, you know, you build up to for so long. Quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to economist Micah Pollack today. Micah, uh, tell me a little bit about your um, research trajectory pre-COVID. Yeah, so I have kind of a, I don't know if it's unique, but maybe unusual one in the sense that, um, I had an advisor in grad school kind of identified this early on that the way I like to look at things and the way I like to do my research is I, I find something that is an unusual question or it kind of interests me. Um, and then I just say, well, let me dig into that and kind of look closer at it. And so 
I have kind of an eclectic set of research, I guess you could say. You know, I've done um, some financial economics research in published finance journals, as well as I'm, as an educator, I'm very interested in the scholarship of teaching and learning. So I have a number of publications there as well. And then um, a really big part of my research is actually regional economics, because I'm here in Northwest Indiana, right? I, I teach in the city of Gary. And there's just this incredible economic history of the steel industry and U.S. steel and um, you know, you know, racial, you know, diversity and racial issues, and all kind of condensed down into one place. And then you know, you have population migration. You have this, you know, the city that, you know, in the '50s was a bustling metropolis, and and then you know, lost more than half its population in the following decades. And so it's just a fascinating geographic area. And so I do a lot of economic research on Northwest Indiana, and that's actually what got me into um, looking at COVID data because. You know, I, I regularly would give presentations and talks about, you know, what's going on in the economy. And starting, you know, March of last year or so, um, the economy became intertwined with COVID. And so to understand what was happening with the economy, we, we had to understand what was going on with COVID. And that's kind of how I got sucked into, into, into looking at COVID data. And then, you know, from there, it's kind of just snowballed again. You know, when I see something that kind of interests me, interests me, you know, a challenging question or problem, um, I like to go after it. And so, so that's kind of how it snowballed from there. Well, let, let's start with that. I mean, uh, just in terms of your the, the local region, and I mean, in American history, certainly since the 19th century, the economic vitality of that region has been enormous, and it's gone through industrialization and deindustrialization and so many different sort of economic layers in between. What has the COVID impact been there in that region in Indiana? So you're yeah. sort of in greater Chicago. I don't that, I don't want to hurt anybody. Somebody's going to get mad at me for no, saying that. It's I, not Chicago land. I don't know. Is it really no, considered it can, it can sort of... Yeah, we call it Chicago land. Yeah, we call okay, it. Okay, okay. But uh, right. yeah, we kind of joke that like Chicago doesn't want to take to take responsibility for us and neither does Indiana. So we're kind of like in this, you know, in neutral zone in between Chicago and Indiana. Uh, and nobody wants us. But yeah, it's a very industrial uh, region. I mean, we have U.S. Steel and, um, you know, are the, the biggest their biggest, you know, steel plant, one of the biggest steel plants in the U.S. Um, you know, we have ArcelorMittal, which was recently sold to Cleveland Cliffs, which is the largest steel company in the United States, has a big mill here. We have the largest BP refinery in the world here. So we have a lot of industry, heavy manufacturing, steel, but, you know, industrial construction and a lot more. Um, and then it's also kind of supported by a lot of service sector jobs as well, because you, you know, have a lot of workers that, um, you know, want to be able to go out to eat and uh, have entertainment. And so uh, it, it's kind of like a microcosm of heavy industry, heavy manufacturing up here. And it, it's very different than I think the rest of Indiana, where you think of like agricultural and, and farming. Um, we certainly have a lot of that in Indiana. Uh, and as you go south, you have that here too. But up here, it's a lot about the steel mills. It's a lot about the lakeshore um, and a lot about manufacturing. Did the mills close or everything was deemed essential work and they and they remained open throughout? As much as possible, they remained open. Um, there were instances where, you know, there would be an outbreak or people testing positive and, and sections would have to be, be closed down. But for the most part, they kind of trundled on. And it was kind of interesting because you, you think like in a restaurant where you've got lots of people close together, all breathing the same air you can understand how a virus could spread there pretty easily. But then you think about manufacturing, you think people tend to be spread out more, right? There's, you're not kind of in such cramped quarters, maybe not working hand to hand with somebody else. And so definitely going into this, I think there was this idea that, yeah, it's going to hit restaurants. It's going to hit, you know, 
you know, retail stores, things like that, but manufacturing is probably going to be untouched. And, and that really wasn't the case. There really were manufacturing uh, shutdowns as a result of this. Um, not so much at the, at the big places, um, but, but certainly the smaller manufacturing firms were hit pretty hard by it. And so they, how do they manage that? They had to just be reactive to the caseload. And then when it reached a certain threshold, they would, they would shut down, close shifts. I mean, how do they, how do they do that? It varied a lot depending on the company, but in many ways, similar to like a restaurant would, you know, if there's somebody that's tested positive then you know, they maybe have the people that were close to them quarantine and stay home. And then if the outbreak gets too big and there's too many cases, then maybe they, they can't run the lines or something like that. Yeah. So at a sort of aggregate level, I don't know if it's too soon to say something about like the impact on the Indiana economy overall, but can you, can you, can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, and the one thing that kind of, kind of, we forget about is that before we went into COVID, we were in a trade war. And so we were already talking about some challenges to Northwest Indiana because we, you know, we ex- export a lot of steel. Um, we export a ton of soybeans um, and the trade war that we've kind of all forgotten about for the most part, just because COVID's taken up uh, all the attention, uh, you know, still going on. Uh, and so there was a lot of economic concern before and that continued through, um, you know, with COVID and certainly in terms of employment, we, we don't, see jobs coming back rapidly here. We're still well below kind of the level we were pre-pandemic. Um, and I think that surprises a lot of people, especially when we're not just talking about like food service jobs, we're, we're actually talking about manufacturing jobs and higher paying jobs. Um, we're still just behind in, in a big part because you have you know global economic issues uh, you know affecting these industries as well. The, just to come back to one thing about the essential work aspect, you know, I, I know that you know, the meatpacking industry got most of the attention along those lines because uh, the previous administration actually released an executive order demanding that that industry remain open and staffed. And I mean, even at that time, there was discussion of somehow we bring the National Guard in and keep the meatpacking plants open. I think that um, some of that, of course, was based in the reality of what the terrible things that were happening in those plants. Um, but some of it also was a bit of stagecraft, I think, to calm national nerves so that people didn't feel like their food supply was going to be um, disturbed. And, you know, sort of come back to some of the industries that have the legacy industries there where you are in Northwest Indiana. Um, I didn't hear a similar discourse around steel, but maybe I wasn't paying attention. No, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, people connect directly with meatpacking, right? They see, you know, I, I'm buying chicken that I, I can see being manufactured here. But there, there are more steps with a lot of the other products that we make here, like, you know, steel, right? It's hard to go from the idea of a steel beam to like an automobile, right? It's not as intuitive. And so I think, you know, that kind of separates us a little bit from the end consumer. And so maybe it was not quite as a, you know, surprising story, you know, when things went down. And, and it's also true that, you know, steel is not as perishable as, as meat, right? So, sure. you know, we have stockpiles and we can rely on that as well. So whereas, you know, you can't stockpile chickens as easily. <laughs> Well, let's zoom out to the national economy a little bit. I mean, we are still in the pandemic, so we can't speak as if we can make you know conclusions at this point. But I am curious the kind of trends that have caught your attention and what can be said at this point of the effect of this pandemic on the national economy. Yeah, so you know it's a fascinating time to be you know an epidemiologist or a virologist or anything something like that. But it's also a fascinating time to be an economist because. Um, you know, this is not a usual recession. I mean, often, if you think back to like the 2008, 2009 recession, there was some weakness, right, in that case with mortgage markets and, 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 and loans and things like that, um, that then 
collapsed and caused the recession. Here, it's very much an external force, and it's one that doesn't really affect the factors of production in the way that other crises do. And so it's, it's more like an on-off switch. Um, and so it, compared to other recessions, in some ways, we're surging back much faster than we ever would have expected because nothing was really you know, permanently altered. But in other areas, in particular labor, um, we're seeing really big consequences. And I think it's not a coincidence that you know, national headlines have, have focused a lot on labor and unemployment insurance and extensions of benefits and things like that, because that's the one area that I think we'll see the most kind of long-term changes as a result of the pandemic. Sorry, I lost your audio. Sorry about that. No, no, no that's my, that's on me. I've done that twice in two days. I think I, um, I'm having a battle with my microphone. Um, but I, what I wanted to follow up on with with that was uh, was to go a little further. So you're saying that in terms of the economic impact, which I guess does tip into what you would define as a recession. Yeah, um, I mean they haven't formally announced that it's a recession yet, but usually these things take 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 effect after the fact, right? So once it's over for six months, they'll say, yeah, this is official start and end date of recession. Yeah. But you think about it differently than, let's say, the 2008 fiscal crisis. I mean, it's a fundamentally different situation. Yeah, absolutely. Because, again, there was some economic weakness there that ultimately collapsed and led to the recession. Here, it was more like, we're just going to shut everything off for a while, and then we'll turn it back on and hope it still works. <laughs> and do, should we understand the global economic situation in the same way, or we're going to see variability, which is going to be much more stark? Where, well, I, yeah, I think I think it's similar. I mean, again, the longer you leave it off, maybe the harder it is to turn it back on again. And so, you know, here in the U.S., you know, being kind of leading in terms of vaccinations, I think we'll be on track to get back on, you know, turn things back on as quickly, more quickly than maybe the rest of the world. Um, so, so things may alter internationally and globally. But yeah, I think it's fair to think of it the same way there. Oh, then kind of diving diving in a little bit for, further than there. Certain sectors and societies, just like the virus, has demonstrated the inequalities in American society and, and around the world. Economically, we must have seen the same thing. And I'm particularly curious how you think the all of the discourse around the relief payments last year here in the United States, how, what you thought about that, was it being explained well enough? Did people understand the need for individual relief or you know, these checks just arrive and people thought, okay, that's, I, I'm sort of curious how you assess that moment in policymaking, because it's rare when Republicans and Democrats agree about even the time of day these days, but those checks went out pretty quickly. Yeah, I think that's just a testament to how much people were hurting at the time. And even if things could have gotten worse, they, they were very much on the brink of getting worse. I mean, when you talk about, um, you know, evictions, people losing their houses, people, you know, going to poverty, um, I mean, it, it could have been a lot worse. I do think that the relief payments made a big difference. I mean, there are, I still remember the quote of the person that said that, you know, the relief payments uh, allowed her to do something that she hadn't done before, which was feed her kids three square meals a day, right? And, you know, that has an effect on the population. I think it was, you know, a, a probably a, an equalizer in the sense that, you know, there was a minimum amount of money that you could count on, uh, whether it was enough or whether we should have done more or whether you know, we should have done less. That, that's really hard, hard to say. But I think that it, there's pretty strong evidence that it, it had a significant effect on people's livelihoods and kept many people out of poverty and, and probably saved some lives as well. Is there some way to track that 
in terms of the impact that made? Because what you just described maybe is that people had pre-existing economic distress in their family, maybe not everybody's in work or there's a chronic health issue or they're below the poverty line. And then these relief payments come in, yes, because of COVID, but it actually maybe briefly bumped their income level up to where they could do things they couldn't do before. That's an an important phenomenon that I don't think has received enough attention. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure this will be the focus of research you know, in years to come. But in a sense, we had a little mini experiment with universal basic income. Oh, for a sense, right? Not for a whole year, but for a couple months there. You know, it was universal basic income. And I think that changed people's perspectives on on, on what income is and, and how, how the government could potentially help people. You think it changed it to the point at which it can become politically viable? I mean, I think we're seeing, again, in the labor market, these big shifts as a result of maybe not necessarily only the you know relief payments, but also kind of the economic changes that happen to workers that I think will alter the, the dialogue, yeah. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking about the economic impacts and context of COVID-19 today with economist Michael Pollack. Micah Pollack. Micah, let me um, ask you this. I, I like the way you described your, um, your kind of topic selections as an economist. You follow your interests. Um, and, and, and so I, w- I wanted to follow up on that because there must be aspects of COVID from an economic sense that defy conventional wisdom. Or, or maybe it just proves all of the conventional thinking. And I know it, within economics, like every other social science, there's different modes of thinking and making sense of the world. So I don't mean you to have to say there's consensus among all economists. However, um, I am curious sort of what forms of conventional wisdom or ideas have been provoked and pushed by this time. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and being kind of engaged on social media, you get hit with a lot of different ideas that people have all decided are, you know, are, are, is the correct idea. Um, so, so two maybe points that, you know, I don't know if they, they were necessarily conventional or picked up by a lot of economists, but again, early on in the pandemic, one of the kind of the common threads was whenever a region or an area or a nation shut down, you know, had a curfew, had, you know, stay-at-home orders, um, there was this automatic reaction that that's going to kill the economy. Um, and so I remember early on, a lot of the kind of misinformation that I, that I was talking, you know, dealing, had to deal with on a kind of daily basis was we need to open up the economy. We need to get rid of these restrictions. We need to, you know, get rid of lockdowns and shutdowns because those things are killing our economy. And I think a lot of economists, including myself, felt that that really wasn't the case. I mean, we, our economy was hurting because of the virus, because of the pandemic. And the way that you address that economic problem is by dealing with the pandemic, right? In long-term vaccinations, but but short-term, you need to lower the spread to the point where people feel comfortable again. And so kind of the general maybe feeling on the street was that, you know, blocking restaurants from having, you know, high capacities and things like that, or, or maybe not even being able to eat inside at all, um, you know, was hurting the economy. And it, it really was kind of the opposite of that. Um, and I think that's something that economists really haven't had to explain so much before because this is such a unique um, economic crisis. I mean, it's possible back in you know 1918 with the 
Spanish flu, there were similar stories going on, but you know, we didn't have the data back then to kind of back things up. Let's go a little further with that, because I think that's an important moment in the history of this pandemic that we're going to want to come back to and really and think about, because that discourse was out there. And certainly there were there were some governors who who said, you know, and they made it a kind of a political point and it became a partisan point. Unfortunately, we're going to remain open or we're going to open up as soon as and I think particularly in Florida and Texas in this regard. Um, as big states with very diverse economies, and they and they opened back up very quickly. And I felt like the economy was being discussed as if it was something separate from people, almost like we're going to reopen the economy, right? Um, so that we don't have economic distress, and we're not going to let you know government tell us we can't reopen the economy. And I kept thinking, well, who is the what is the econ- what is this economy you're talking about? Is people having to go into a place and work where they're going to make each other sick? So I, I I felt like there was a big disconnect there in terms of the way we talk about what the economy is and the reality of that this was as you said a time to tackle the problem in front of us, which was actually the spread of the virus. That was just what I was was tracking and that doesn't go anywhere into sort of economic theory. That's just the way that policymakers talk about the economy. Yeah. I mean, basic economics, you have two sides of the market. You have consumers and you have producers, right? Buyers and sellers. And I think what you saw is a lot of people, you know, states, politicians were focusing on the seller side of the market, right? Business focused. And so from their perspective, they have businesses, people are coming into the business and it's easy to point at something like an order that prevents people from coming into a business and say, that's the culprit, right? But you're ignoring the other side of the market, right? The consumers, people like you and I, individuals. And there's a reason we're not going into the restaurant. And, and, and it may be because there's that restriction, but more likely it's because we don't feel comfortable doing that and going into the restaurant when there's this virus that we don't understand and we have poor data on and we don't know, you know what's going to happen next. And so I think that you have to address both sides of those things. And I think that's what people didn't get. You know, you can get rid of the restrictions and open up for business, but that doesn't mean that customers are going to come into your business, right? And there are cases where people have done that, restaurants did that, and then nobody came into the restaurant and or they didn't see an increase in, in consumers at all. And so, I, again, it's trying, to, it's trying to kind of treat the symptom instead of the root cause of the problem, which was that, you know, a lot of people didn't feel comfortable going out and, you know, patronizing these establishments with so much uncertainty and you know, so much concern about the virus. And, and the way you address that is you alleviate those concerns, right? You you make sure everyone's consistent wearing masks and you have better ventilation. And you know those kinds of issues would probably have much more of an effect than simply saying, okay, we're going to let you go into the restaurant now. What was the impact on small business, if you can say anything about that in the aggregate? Because that's one area where staying closed for even three months not to mention six months or longer can really be devastating, I think. Yeah, I think we lost a lot of small businesses during this time. Um, the, the positive side of things is that it it really forced a lot of businesses to innovate in ways that they weren't expecting, right? And so we had restaurants that simply shifted to delivery only, right? And they restructured their whole you know business plan to reflect that. And I think those that innovated and kind of stepped up to the challenge uh, for the most part, did well. And some, you know, discovered ways of doing business that they never knew were possible before, and, and they're not going to go back. Um, and so I think that those that were able to innovate and maybe had enough of a cushion, whether it was through small business loans or uh, simply, you know, being in a good place financially, I think they actually were strengthened by this in the end, because it forced them to think in new ways about getting products to people and 
know, that ultimately made them a more competitive business. One of the arguments I heard uh, last summer now was that we should, we needed a more vigorous policy to actually just pay small businesses to remain closed uh, in a, instead of putting them in the in this sort of decision where they're like, well, can I stay open? Can I partially close? How do I innovate? <clears throat> because that innovation, I agree with you, it's been really striking. Maybe not every type of small business could figure out how to do that. I don't know. Would it have mattered had there been direct payments to businesses, small businesses over a longer period of time so that they could just make the decision, we're staying closed? Yeah, I think it would have helped a lot. I mean, we wouldn't have lost as many small business businesses. But at the same time, if you just could close your business and not have to worry about income for three months or six months or whatever it is, then you have less incentive to innovate in a sense, right? You just say, okay, well, I'll just shut everything down, take my government payment and then reopen exactly the same way. And, and I think that is is kind of the flaw. And, and, and if we look at kind of the economic challenges now, like with unemployment insurance and, and kind of the claims about how it you know, reduces employment, they're very similar because in the end, it's it's tough for businesses and you have to respond to those challenges. And if you don't and you just want to keep going business as usual the way you've been doing it, that may no longer be viable now that everything has changed. Oh, uh, just to turn to that for a second, you were quoted in a recent Indiana public media um, uh, story. And I just want to read this this quote because it's, it's a provocative one. And on this exact issue about the impact of relief payments um, for workers and what the impact that might have on their desire to return to the workforce. And and you say um, in this piece, you said, I think it's kind of like a cop out for business owners to say that because it puts all the, for business owners to say that because it puts all the blame on the workers and then they don't take any responsibility for what's happening. So uh, let's, let's go a little bit further with, with that, because this has been uh, like everything sort of brought back into the meat grinder of American political um, partisanship. Do those relief payments to workers keep them from seeking jobs? So I think that intuitively there is a reason to think that. And I think that there it is a it is a reasonable hypothesis to put out there. But empirically, if you look at the data, the answer is, is no, it doesn't. Um, in fact, we can go back to previous recessions because the same kind of questions came up in previous recessions where we had expanded unemployment benefits. And you don't find the kind of turning off of benefits at the as the kind of the, the need goes away to increase employment. What we do find is that um, these benefits tend to just be keeping people in the labor force a little bit longer. And then when the benefits are gone, um, they tend to drop out of the labor force anyway. So you're not going to be pushing a lot of people back into jobs because you know you've gotten rid of this incentive to stay home. Um, there's going to be exceptions. There's going to be you know individuals that say, yeah, I'm not going to go look for work until my unemployment benefits run out. But by and large, people don't want a quick handout from the government. They want you know, a reliable source of income, a career, some upward mobility. Um, and, you know, if, you know, the other, the other thing I like to say is if a couple hundred bucks a week is enough to keep you from going to your job, that really says something about the quality of job that, you know, the employer is offering, right? If, if, if me getting another hundred dollars is enough to me, for me to say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to leave this job and deal with all of the paperwork and the bureaucracy of unemployment insurance, it doesn't say much about how your job, how good of a job you're providing to, to the workers there. So when, when you flip the script that way, then it puts the onus um, on the employers to look at the nature of the work and the and the compensation that they're offering. Have you seen that impact? Are you know businesses that are struggling that were struggling with one wage offer are now turning around and increasing wages, or are they just yeah. re- reducing staff and asking existing staff to work harder? 
Well, I think it goes back to the, the, the firms that are willing to innovate and find a way to adapt to the challenges yeah. end up being successful. And, and you do have quite a few stories of businesses that said, hey, okay, we're going to rethink our whole compensation. We're going to pay you a living wage. We're going to make sure you have health insurance. We're going to make sure you have flexible work hours. And businesses that do that for the most part, they are not complaining about lack of workers. It's the ones that want to continue offering minimum wage, You know, don't provide any benefits, expect workers to work in environments where they might be at risk to exposure, um, essentially doing the same things they were doing before that are having the real problem raising uh, you finding enough workers. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about COVID-19 and the economy with economist Micah Pollack. And you mentioned uh, a minute ago, you were talking about um, you, a brief mention of 1918. And I, th- I know economic history is one of the areas you're interested in. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Any historical parallels been interesting to you at this time? Yeah, I mean, again, this economic crisis is is so unique. I mean, I guess you'd have to go back to probably 1918 to really see anything similar to it. Just the nature of the economic crisis is so much different than you know any of the crises we've we've experienced before. And even you know, if you go back to 1918, I mean, that was before we developed GDP as a measure, and you know, the amount of data we have now is so much more than then. Uh, and so I think that we're learning almost for the first time a lot of stuff about this kind of recession. I mean, we've had supply side recessions, we've had demand side recessions, we've had, you know, oil, you know, recessions due to oil uh, prices. Um, but this is really the first, I guess you would call it health recession um, that mm. we're experiencing. And um, I think we're going to be learning a lot about how we deal with it. And I, and I think that like I said before, you know, the um, the relief payments were almost like a mini experiment in uh, universal basic income. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see kind of perceptions around that starting to change in the next few years as, as people remember and say, hey, you know, that made a huge difference to me. Why can't we do that more often? It's interesting. I mean, I wonder just to say a little bit more from an economist's perspective, when you're reaching for historical parallels and there really isn't one at hand, what do you do then? How do you make inferences from the past then to help you as you're theorizing what we're living through right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I love looking at old newspaper clippings. And so I, I have done a fair share of looking back through the newspapers at the time. And there's some really fascinating graphs of you know cases and, and things like that, that that essentially look like they could be of today. And I've seen, you know, some people have matched them up with the curves, right? So you have this old, you know, print you know, piece of paper that somebody scanned and, you know, you've got to match up to like a modern curve of case counts and uh, it's eerily similar. And and you find lots of examples of people complaining about similar economic problems too, like shutting down, uh, you know, the economy, wearing masks, uh, all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's not new. I mean, humans in a sense haven't changed that much in, you know, a hundred years or so. I, I wonder, you know, when you do uh, find those examples where there's some historical resonance across time, but the ways of thinking about the economy have changed. What what, what do you think about that? I, I mean, is that the ways that people think about the economy have changed in general? I mean, certainly, I mean, you're talking about like GDP doesn't didn't exist at certain points, or certain kinds of tools that you have as economists. I mean, that's that sure. shows some evolution yeah. of the field, yeah. I guess. But I mean, again, it's only for the for the most part, it's the economists that are using those tools, like the <laughs> okay. average person, right? I, I'm <laughs> right. not sure their right. view has actually changed that much. So I think you could have the same kind of perspective. But yeah, as an economist and, and somebody who looks at this regularly. I mean, if, it was, if I was back in 1918, I, I, I wouldn't be able to do a lot of the stuff that I do today simply because you didn't have these same tools available. I guess the, the point I was, the question I'm coming to with that is, um, are the 
the tools of gathering data and data analysis up to the moment. I mean, do you, have you found in the pandemic that you certainly got more than you did in 1918, but has economics developed to the point where you have the tools that you need? Is government collecting the data that you need as an economist to make sense of the impact on the economy? Well, I mean, we always want better data. And you know, one of the things that pulled me towards doing, looking at COVID data is just how much data you're getting and how quickly it's coming. So, you know, here in Indiana, we get, you know, since the beginning of March, we've been getting daily updates on, you know, first just cases and then deaths and, uh, you know, testing and, you know, it goes on and on and on. You've got now, you know, the Indiana Data Hub has, you know, 30, 40 different files they update daily, right? And, you know, down to the county level. And so that's, as an economist, you know, it kind of spoils me because we don't get that kind of data for the most part, right? We'll get census data, which is very detailed, but you know, it'll be every year and it'll be on like a couple year delay. Um, and so when I try to like go back to my day job and look at like economic trends in Northwest Indiana, you know, it, maybe there's not any new data releases since I looked at it last a month ago, whereas, you know, everything has changed in COVID. So yeah, that's an interesting, you know, parallel here that, you know, it would be great to see more economic data kind of in real time, um, especially at the local level. I mean, nationally, you can get that kind of stuff. But at the local level, if I want to know what's going on in a specific region, you know, month to month, week to week, day to day, even, it would be fantastic to have that kind of data. That's uh, a nice, honest observation. <laughs> the the economist with uh, some bit of envy about the data flow, of course, the context being one none of us would choose, but still, the flow of health data has been really remarkable. I think most people interact with that day by day with these tremendous data visualizations that news organizations have turned um, into both a science and an art form simultaneously. Um, it's been impressive to me, although I have to say I have to rely on others usually to get one level beneath those and really try to understand if the visualization is doing what it should, if it's convincing me of the right thing, if I'm taking into account all of the factors. I know data visualization is something you're interested in. What, what have you thought about this this time in terms of taking complicated data sets and rendering them into something that um, a non-expert can perceive quite quickly and make a decision about? Yeah, it's, it's really a double-edged sword because having access to so much data makes it easy to see the kind of visualizations that you want. But at the same time, it's very easy to, you know, make a mistake in the visualization or, or have the data portrayed in a way that is really not kind of the story the data is actually telling. And so uh, I think it's created opportunities for lots of information and, and kind of expanding people's awareness, but, but also some misinformation as well. Um, because, I mean, again, statistics, you know, can be used to make a lot of different arguments. But you know, for me, coming from a background of education and you know, being in the classroom, uh, my goal has been from the beginning has been to create visualizations that help people understand how to understand the data and to, to read the data and to look at the data. And a lot of this pandemic, you know, on social media, I've been trying to kind of hone those skills. So I'll put out, you know, maybe I'll, I'll be curious, one of the first kind of visualizations I ever made that created lots of controversy was um, I just compared flu deaths in Indiana by week with COVID deaths and just put them side by side. So you can see, okay, week one of the most, you know, week one of the year of the most, you know, of the worst flu we've had in the last 10 years, this is how many people died week two and you stack them up with, with COVID and, um, you know, it creates all sorts of controversy and people object and then you kind of refine it and say, okay, well, if, you know, you don't like this part of the, of the assumptions, we can change them a little bit and make it a little bit more compelling. Um, and it's really kind of an iterative process where you, 
kind of take the data and find the way that works best. So, mm. you know, I, I tend to make a lot of graphs and then 90% of the time I throw them away because they don't really convey a clear story. But then, you know, that 10% you get to save and kind of work on and refine. And, and, and I think I, I've been able to come up with some compelling graphs and in, in kind of visualizations over the course of the pandemic. And um, I, I kind of use that for, for my own sake for when I'm thinking about how do I teach material in the classroom? Because I want to be, I have a limited amount of time with the audience, whether it's students or people on, on social media. So what is that one thing I can show them that will kind of convey as much information as clearly you know, as possible? That's really interesting. I, you know, we've talked a lot about the skills of health communicators in this time. The problem of taking what's often contradictory or confusing uncertainty um, in the epidemiological statistics and try to give life-saving advice uh, to people, you're describing something that's not that different. I mean, you're trying to take really complicated, often messy data sets and turn it into something that can grab people and, and provoke them to ask further questions. I, maybe you don't see it that way, but I mean, your no, description no, of it. That's exactly what I see. I'm trying to distill it down to kind of the most important points and then express them in the most kind of direct, clear way possible. So what was the objection to the <laughs> flu, COVID? I mean, that discourse was weaponized to a certain degree yeah. by the former president of the United States. So I get that. But I mean, just in terms of as a question to consider, that's a good question to ask, isn't it? Oh, the, there's a long laundry list of objections. Things like, you know, we we don't have a vaccine for COVID, but we do have it for the flu. So you have to adjust for like whether they're mm -hmm. vaccinated or not. We, right. you know, we don't test, you know, in the same way. We, you know, we maybe you know, at the time a big uh, objection was that we were overcounting COVID deaths, so that we were counting things that were not COVID. Maybe even counting flu deaths as, as COVID deaths, and you know, like a lot of these things, that tended to be a long laundry list of objections. And 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 again, this kind of fit with what I was trying to do actually perfectly fine because I'm trying to distill it down. And so, if these are objections, are there ways that I could address address them? Like I think the first graph I made, it was just the last year's pandemic or last year's flu data. And then someone was like, well, yeah, but last year was an unusually light year. So I say, okay, so let me go back and find what was the most deadly, you know, flu season in the last 20 years in Indiana. And let's use that instead. And then you kind of slowly whittle away at the objections. And some you'll never convince, but if you can kind of preemptively deal with as many objections as possible, then I think that that makes it more of an effective visualization. What were some of the other visualizations that people found compelling that you've created through this time? Oh, um, I mean, I've done a lot of kind of tr daily trend tracking. I mean, my favorite one, I think, is I still have, it's just a bar chart of, uh, or just a line graph of, of daily cases, average daily cases. But then I, underneath that, have color bars that represent three days of increases or decreases. So it's this really nice red and blue, blue graph with kind of gray where whenever cases rise for three days, you know, you get red coloration underneath it. And then whenever cases are ambiguous, maybe they go up and down for a few days, it goes to gray. And then when you're going back up again, it's red and then down it's blue. And so what I think it captures is that when you just glance at it, you can immediately see, okay, wow, it's a lot of red. And intuitively you're like, okay, that is bad. And that means that we've had consistent increases in cases. And then you say, oh, look, there's this big blue section. Okay. That, that thing's cooling off a little bit and maybe things are getting better. So I, I personally like that one a lot. Yeah, I, I appreciate this part of our discussion. I haven't had a chance to talk with anybody about this because I do think, you know, this is a time in which, and it's not just COVID, but science in general in the United States, you know, disputes over science in a democracy, that's not a new thing. 
Um, but the vast amount of disinformation that's been intentionally poured into that discussion is distressing. And I think educators, particularly like yourself, you know, who get up in the morning and, and think, well, here's some things I need to try to get across to people, fundamental ideas and then tools also, that disinformation has made the work even harder. I'll, I'll go a step further. I mean, someone like yourself who then tries to take it into social media. So you're not just doing this in the classroom. You're also sort of trying to reach a broader audience. I don't know. I guess I, I don't want to be too pessimistic about it, but I do worry that as educators and as people who speak to the public, it's just getting too swamped to actually have a, a clear moment where we can discuss. And maybe you talk me out of that because it seems like you've <laughs> you've stuck with this a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, social media can be somewhat of an echo chamber, but I, I do think that um, you know, convincing arguments based on facts are much easier to support, right? And so, if you have misinformation, you have a visualization that's just using the wrong data or something, that's very easy to disassemble. It's much mm -hmm. harder to disassemble something that you know has gone through multiple iterations and had feedback from lots of different people and has been improved upon and has old sources listed, and you know. I mean, the same way, you know, I, I think it is maybe a pessimistic view that, you know, there's all this misinformation we can, can't possibly keep up. But one good, you know, well-designed visual, visualization has the potential to get rid of, to, to kind of demolish a lot of poorly made misinformation in, in, in visualizations. And, and maybe that's kind of an optimistic view, but because it, it does take more work to make one good positive visualization. But once that's created, um, it, it's really hard to argue with because, you know, everything's laid out there kind of clearly. And I have seen that there's been a lot less kind of, the better I've gotten at visual at making visualizations and kind of conveying data, the less pushback I get because I've kind of preemptively dealt with those arguments. I, you know, when I create a visualization, I'm going to say, okay, somebody's going to come in and say, well, this isn't the, you know, it's missing this component. And so you preemptively build in, okay, this is why that component isn't relevant here or something like that. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking about the economic impact of COVID-19 with Dr. Micah Pollack. And I want to come to um, some collaboration that you've done. I was lucky enough to speak with Dr. Gabriel Boslett a few weeks ago, and in fact, he was the connector between the two of us, and shout out to Gabriel and all of the tremendous work that he does. And so here you had a physician and an economist, you, who came together um, with some other colleagues, I believe, as well, um, to work on a project. And I talked about it a little bit with him, but he said, I want you to talk to Micah and get his take on it, which I thought was a really nice um, invitation. So I took it. Um, and the paper that you released is titled The Effective In-Person Primary and Secondary School Instruction on County-Level SARS-CoV-2 Spread in Indiana. It's a local study, but it has really broad implications, I think, in terms of trying to understand the return to school in the middle of a pandemic and the kinds of questions people have to take into account on what that's going to mean. Tell us about the, the project and the publication. Yeah. So I think I have to back up and give you a little bit more background. So um, I, I met Dr. Bosset over Twitter um, up until a couple of weeks ago, we'd never met in person either. So mm. everything has been totally virtual. And it was actually that um, flu comparison graph that I, I mentioned earlier that I think led Dr. Bossa to find me on Twitter. And then we had lots of conversations and we've collaborated on a lot of stuff since then. But, you know, last summer, as we were getting close to, you know, schools coming back. So like mid-July, you know, right around this time of year, um, we had a bit of a discussion kind of behind the scenes, not publicly 
just about what we thought would happen with schools. And I think we came from, at it from very different perspectives. Um, obviously, I'm an educator and Dr. Boston is as well, but you know, I'm, I'm full-time in the classroom. And so my perspective was seeing kids in the classroom in person and you know, thinking about kids going back to school in person, thinking about you know, K-12 students going back to school in person. And from my perspective, I, I didn't see the risk that the risk was worth taking. I, I just thought, why don't we, they should just do e-learning entirely, right? I mean, because you've, that eliminates all the risk. And yes, it's not perfect. It's going to have downsides. People are going to get left behind. It's not going to be great for students, but it completely eliminates the risk. So, so that's what we should be doing. And he kind of came at me, came at it from a different perspective, kind of the medical perspective, seeing COVID inpatients in, you know, the hospital. Um, and, and he... I, Again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he felt that the risk was not that much, that, you know, the risk of transmission and serious sickness amongst kids is relatively low. And, you know, going to in-person classes is, is maybe not as much of a risk as some people thought. Uh, and so we kind of came at it from totally different perspectives and we were talking about it. And then um, we also were talking about how in Indiana, they haven't really standard, they didn't standardize how schools were, were going to reopen. It was kind of left up to the local school district local county health department, um, which meant that everything under the sun was happening, right? Some places were just going to stick with 100% e-learning for the whole year. Uh, other places were just going to go back in person full-time. And we were talking about it. And at one point we were saying, you know, this is kind of like a natural experiment where we can see what happens if we you know, are ready to track and just follow and see, okay, if districts that were mostly in person reopen, and there's a lot of cases and those that are doing e-learning, you know, the spread goes way down. Um, you know, maybe that, that tells us a little bit about the risk. And there have been studies about in-person instruction for a while now, um, but they mostly focused on the actual classroom itself. So, you know, did spread happen in the room? You know, you know, how did it happen? Who did it happen between? Um, and and the, those are very problematic because there's all sorts of issues with the data collection because schools have an incentive maybe um, not to talk, you know, not to encourage parents to test their kids as much. And, and parents don't want to get their kids tested sometimes either because at the time, you know, it was invasive. And if you test positive as a kid, maybe you're not able to participate in sports or something like that. And so we wanted to kind of stay away from the classroom itself. And so we came up with a study idea where we're just going to look at school districts and counties and see you know, how, how they reopen and then look at the community spread uh, at, at the end. So if there's spread that's happening in the classroom, then presumably classes, uh, schools that are more in person, there's going to be more spread. And then that spread's going to you know, expand to the community and we'll see a rise in cases in the community as well. And then hopefully bypass all the, con you know, the controversy over you know, whether the data coming out of schools is, is reliable or not. And so, you know, we were sitting a couple of weeks before schools were supposed to start opening and we, we kind of said, okay, well, this sounds like a great idea. We're kind of at the right place at the right time. Now, how do we actually do it? And I remember it was, it was really tough to kind of sit down and figure out how to actually do it because we're like, okay, how are we going to figure out for the, you know, 400 school districts in Indiana what they're doing in like a couple of weeks before they open? And then that's when we brought on another colleague, um, Dr. Mark Sperling, who's the Dean of the School of Education up here. Because um, we just asked him, we're like, how would you do this? How would we get this data if it doesn't exist? And, and he was just like, do you just want me to talk to everybody in the school districts? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, I can just email them. I know almost everybody. So like, we can do that. Great. And so for the next few weeks, we just, with his help, we're able to go and just contact the school districts and say, hey, we're doing this study. Can you tell us what percentage of your students are going to be in person versus e-learning? And districts that probably would never have even responded from an email from me, you know, just started sending us back their data and sharing it. And um, it really made the whole, uh, you know, project possible. So tell us about the, first of all, as a research design 
That's great because it's very concrete. I understand it completely. And then at the critical moment, it's like, we need another member of the team. Yeah. Like, so it became this sort of broader interdisciplinary team. I think a lot of people in context of COVID have had to innovate in that way. And am I right? Yeah. At, 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 and everything was done, you were on Zoom calls, I presume. Yeah, we I we've never met. I mean, I met Dr. Boston in person a couple of weeks ago, but other than that, I've never met any other. Well, I know Mark Sperling, but I didn't any other collaborators, uh, you know, in person. We we brought in a couple other people too as well. Someone, uh, Dr. Young, that's good at you know is in biostatistics to kind of ensure that we're using kind of the latest techniques. And um, we had a medical student as well, Rebecca Roll, who helped with the data collection because it still was you know time consuming to get this all this data collected. Um, but that was another bright spot. It was it was probably the most enjoyable collaboration I've done on any project because it wasn't just a whole bunch of economists talking about the same topic with the same background. It was, you know, doctors and biostatisticians and education and all kind of coming together and to work on it, which was really great. I like the way you describe it. And what were your findings? Yeah. So I think we were both a little surprised. Um, I was expecting to see a pretty big effect. Gabe was expecting to see a pretty small effect. Um, what we ended up seeing was that there was an effect statistically significant. Um, but it was maybe kind of a mild level. So I can give you some numbers here. So we kind of played with these scenarios. Like what if all schools in Indiana had opened with, you know, 25% more in-person learning? How would that have changed the case spread? And, and we found that if they did that, if during kind of the 90-day period we looked at after schools opened, if there had been 25% more students in person, it would have added about a percent more cases during that time, which is, which is not that huge. Um, of course, that kind of got phased in slowly because schools open at different times. If overnight we kind of flew through, through a switch and everybody was 25% more in person, that would have added about 2.5% more cases. And the, I think the true value of the study, you know, we tried to stay out of, you know, prescription of prescriptions of should the schools be open or not. The true value of this is that it puts, a, you know, kind of a numerical value almost, like an empirical value on being open in person. And then it's up to the individuals to decide whether that's a risk that they're, they're willing to take or not, right? So is it worth, uh, you know, one to 2% more cases in a community to have schools open 25% more in person? I mean, now that's the question that the school has to answer and parents have to answer. And I think the most fascinating thing when this study was published is that we had people on both sides using it to kind of support their arguments. So we had some people that would say, hey, look, there's a study that shows that, you know, opening schools in person causes spread in the community. And then someone else would say, hey, look, there's this study that shows that opening schools causes a negligible amount of spread in the community. And so we had both sides arguing against each other, both citing our study to try to kind of make their argument. So I think that, that was, you know, a nice result that we ended up kind of with something that both sides could use. I saw that and I was, uh, was impressed by that because it meant that it, the, to me at least, that the study was valuable enough that it could enter the public space where you should have these debates. And it comes back to a theme we were talking about earlier, which is I just, I wonder, I'll ask you the question, what do you think it would have meant in the United States if we'd had studies like this for every state back in March of 2020? Because, because the school's issue is so personal, it's in every community, it touches on everything we were talking about, it touches on the economy, um, and it touches on, of course, you know, health of children, um, the future of our economy, and so many other things. And yet it often seemed like people were just flying blind. Yeah. So if I can bring it back to economics a little bit, I mean, one of the fundamental ideas in economics is you do something if the benefits outweigh the costs, right? And so when you're deciding to send your kid back to school or not in person, you're going to be thinking about what are the benefits and what are the costs. And the benefits of schooling are something that a parent or you know a teacher is, is well acquainted with. 
right? They know the value of sending their kid to school, right? They learn stuff, um, you know, they, they socialize, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the costs, you know, that's where COVID came in and that's where there was a lot of uncertainty. And so I think most of the arguments we saw last year um, around in-person schooling were people had different expectations of what the costs were, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think the cost is incredibly high, you're going to be opposed to sending your kids back in person. If you think the cost is very low, um, those benefits are going to outweigh the cost and you want them to go back in person. So you have people that are arguing that are not really arguing about the idea of sending kids back to school or not, but they're arguing based on their kind of different prior ideas of what the risks are. So I think the value of a study like this is it, it kind of creates some concrete numbers that people can talk about. And if I think that a 1% increase in cases is not worth it to send my kids back to school, and you think it is, well, that's something we can, you know, disagree upon legitimately. But if you're saying it's one, you know, the risk is, is, is astronomical and I'm saying it's really small, um, you know, there may not be any way we can ever kind of reach common ground. So hopefully it shifts the discourse from one of just in-person good or bad to, okay, how much risk are we willing to accept um, with in-person schooling for the benefit that we get from that? It's really important. And I think, again, it shows um, maybe, again, where the social sciences are absolutely essential to policymaking. And, you know, to try to do this kind of thing in the middle of a pandemic, it was really too late. And so, you know, to me, at least one of the, as we move in the United States, moves to the next phase of this pandemic, we need, we need how many of these kind of studies across the whole country at the county level and, and maybe, you know, more at the metropolitan level so that again, when these kind of decisions have to be made, and they will be, have to be made, um, they can be made um, so that the discussions can move to some sort of common ground, as as you said. And I'm not I'm not naive in the way that this can be, as you said, can be used by both sides to make the case they want to make. That's fine, but to be operating in a sort of data free environment, as many school districts were, um, that was really distressing, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think that's where a lot of the, you know, just not knowing, you know, is sometimes the, the biggest stressor there. I mean, if, if you have data, you can point to and say, look, you know, there is a risk, you know, it's statistically significant. We've, we've identified it, but it's this magnitude. I think that will, you know, yeah, kind of make the conversation much more civilized. And I think will help people a lot. And, and, and we're hoping that that's what happens with this. I mean, it's been a year, you know, since schools are reopened, we're coming up on reopening again, um, we're hoping that this will be helpful for policy decisions. Obviously, things, the circumstances have changed. We did this study before, you know, we even had the UK variant, um, and now we've got the Delta variant, and you know, potentially right. more variants coming. So, you know, it's not the same circumstances, and people will point to that. But you know, at the same time, we also have a large percentage of the population vaccinated. So you know, maybe those two things balance out, and maybe this is still a reasonable approximation of what we might expect in the fall. But but we really hope that, you know, in the fall, it, it will be, um, you know, a useful study that people can use to, you know, argue with their school districts or the school districts, districts can use to kind of make the parents feel a little bit more comfortable about things. Um, and hopefully will affect policy as well. Almost up on time in my discussion with Michael Pollack. And I just wanted to close out, Micah, and sort of find out, it's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you. And, and just sort of thinking, um, what are you working on now we've talked about so many, we talked about the labor market, we've talked about, you know, decision-making and school return. You have a pretty wide brief um, of interest. What is sort of at the top of your list as we're going into, you know, moving into the fall, what kind of projects are you going to be working on? Yeah, so um, it, it, it's good timing because I'm actually going to be taking a sabbatical in the fall to work on a book project uh, that's totally unrelated to COVID, unfortunately. So, you know, it won't tie into this perfectly. Um, 
But I, I do want to go back to some of this data we collected because for this paper, we have data on, um, you know, how schools opened. And we looked at, you know, the COVID risks and, and kind of some health impacts, but there's so many other aspects we could look at. I mean, just looking at, again, this natural experiment of schools, some schools being in person, some not, uh, and some doing hybrid, um, you know, there's, there's got to be other consequences as well. Like, what did it do to, you know, the student's achievement? Right. If you were entirely online versus entirely in person, do we see a difference in the school district, you know, outcomes? Um, you know, if you're in some kind of weird mix and going back and forth and changing your schedule every week, um, does that end up being more detrimental than just committing to being totally online the whole time, even though that has its own drawbacks? Um, so, so I think some avenues of research like that will be will be kind of interesting to go to look at. And, and maybe we'll bring Dr. Bostad in again to kind of help out with that as well. Um, but, yeah, that's, those are some of the things that I'm kind of working on. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and we'll be back on Monday with more COVID Calls. And I want to thank my guest, Michael Pollack, for a wide-ranging conversation about the economic impact of COVID-19. Micah, thanks so much for your time today, and good luck with the book. It sounds fascinating, and with your future work, and I hope we can get you back on at some point, maybe with Dr. Boslett. That would make an interesting conversation. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.